Clips appear courtesy of and are property of Michael Landon Productions and NBC Television. Welcome, friends and listeners, to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast, your home for meaningful and in-depth interviews. Thank you for listening. And now, your host, actor and writer, Stephen Brittingham. Hello, this is Stephen Brittingham. Welcome to a Hollywood and Beyond Podcast special presentation. Remembering Michael Landon with Jeffrey Mark, Chris Hendry, and Judith Chapman. Thank you for joining all of us today. Three guests will be honoring one man, Michael Landon. Each will appear separately, sharing their personal memories of working with Michael, their collective thoughts on his artistry and his legacy, as well as facts and stories of his life. Part one features a man who many describe as a walking encyclopedia of Hollywood history, Jeffrey Mark. He is also an artist himself, for he happens to be an author that includes the books, The Lucy Book, Her Life in Television, and Ethel Merman, the biggest star on Broadway. He sings, writes comedy for stand-up comedians, has hosted radio shows and has received an Emmy Award and has been nominated for a Grammy. Jeffrey will be sharing the incredible and inspirational biography of Michael Landon. In addition, Jeffrey will be covering Michael's years on Bonanza in detail. Jeffrey also shares little-known facts about Michael's personal and professional life, including his friendship with Johnny Carson, and Michael's final days that were full of grace and enormous inner strength. Jeffrey will be sharing all of this with you, the listeners, and wonderful fans of Michael Landon, in a storytelling manner with only a few moments from me. This storytelling approach has never been done here on Hollywood and Beyond before. It is, though, the perfect way to experience Michael's biography. In part two, actor Chris Hendry, who once worked with Anthony Perkins in Psycho 2, joins me to discuss his memorable role on Little House on the Prairie on a powerful two-part episode event titled he was only 12. 
James and Albert walk into a bank robbery where James is critically wounded, shot by the role portrayed by Chris Hendry. After learning James is not expected to survive the shooting, a grief-stricken Charles tracks down the men responsible, all the while begging for God to spare his son. Chris shares his memories of working with Michael and working with him once again years later on Highway to Heaven. And Chris also shares a heartfelt story involving Michael's stepdaughter, Cheryl, which is not to be missed. Part 3 features a lady so talented that if you looked up the word actress in the dictionary, chances are a photo of her would be included. Judith Chapman, who millions of the Young and the Restless viewers and fans know as Gloria Fisher Abbott Bardwell, a character who was once married to the iconic character John Abbott, portrayed in a beautiful performance by Jerry Douglas. She has also recently been seen on Days of Our Lives, while also continuing to dazzle audiences on the stage. Judith is here to share her memories of appearing on an emotionally charged episode from Highway to Heaven, A Mother and a Daughter. On this episode, Judith gave a phenomenal performance as Gail Hall, an estranged daughter who is writing a vengeful book about her mother, a beloved Hollywood actress. Jonathan, the probationary angel sent back to Earth, along with Mark, an ex-cop, portrayed so well by Victor French, step in to show Gail things are not often as they seem. Likewise, Jonathan might be sent back to heaven as a reward for his work as an angel on Earth. Judith shares her memories discussing the episode, and both of us get very emotional discussing Michael Landon's legacy. I hope all of you will enjoy learning more about the man who did it all. Acting, writing, directing, producing, creating. Well, as Chris Hendry often says to me about Michael, a true Renaissance man. Put on a pot of coffee, or perhaps grab that bottle of wine, and let yourself experience the story of an unforgettable artist and man. You will hear clips from Bonanza and Little House on the Prairie, including a special segment from the two-part episode, He Was Only Twelve, featuring Chris Hendry. You will also hear, on a special segment, from a mother and a daughter featuring Judith Chapman. And by listening to these clips, which are carefully constructed by me, my hopes are that you will feel the magic of Michael's talents. At the conclusion, who better to end this episode than the man himself, Michael Landon? Now, 
Let's begin remembering Michael Landon with Jeffrey Mark, Chris Hendry, and Judith Chapman. Thank you. good at anything by myself. Joe, you don't have to prove yourself to us. Uh, I'm trying to prove myself to me. What is it you're trying to prove? I don't know whether, whether I'm good enough, whether I'm old enough, or whether I'm smart enough to do something by myself without three people waiting there to help me every time I stub my toe. I want you to do something for me. Well, what's that? Break these. Break these. All right. Wait a minute. You wouldn't think they'd. Holy. I can't do it, Bob. That's right. Well, they're together like this. You can't break them. But. Singly, they can be broken. By himself. Each one of us can be broken. We're all here, if you need us. I'll remember that part. Jeffrey Mark, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, sir. Well, what a pleasure, first of all, to talk to all of your friends out there, which I know are massive and many. Secondly, what a pleasure to be discussing Michael Landon, who is just one of the best at what he did. And I thank you in advance for having me on. As you know, and our friends out there hopefully will be hearing, I have a book out on Ella Fitzgerald, a wonderful biography available at Amazon.com. Go out and buy it. That's the last part of the commercial. And from now on, we're talking about Michael Landon, who, as it turns out, comes from my hometown, New York City. And I'll bet our friends out there would be very surprised to find out about his beginnings, because... He is such a bastion of middle-class, Protestant, middle America, uh, because of the kinds of shows he did about Westerns, uh, about the early pioneer days, about people helping people. But I think a lot of folks would be surprised to find out that, A, he's from New York City, uh, in Forest Hills, which is a section of Queens. I'm from Brooklyn. Uh, that his father was Jewish. So uh, it's not the the Protestant Bible Belt background a lot of people think he comes from. His father was Jewish, his mother was Irish Catholic, but he was raised Jewish. His original name was Eugene Orowitz. In in fact, his middle name is Maurice, and some people call him Emo for E-M-O, just using the letters of his name. And his background was show business. Both of his parents were in the business in one form or another. 
And despite the wonderful parenting he shows in his shows, every show he was in, the parents are just wonderful. His parents weren't. It was a very unhappy home, so unhappy that Michael was a bedwetter. And uh, he was into his teens before he was able to overcome that. And I think maybe because things weren't going so well at home, he overcompensated by being an overachiever. A lot of us, and I will put the us in that, because I think probably the same thing happened to me. I also came from a New York home that wasn't very happy. We have to achieve. We have to prove that we're good enough. And I think Michael certainly, with all the work that he did through the years, did that. But he became an athlete and a bodybuilder. He was a javelin thrower. I, I never got to ask him, like, where did that come from? I, I've heard of people, like, I always knew. I always knew I was going to sing and be funny. But where does someone figure out they're going to throw a javelin? Well, for him, it was high school. But someone put that in his hands. And because of that, he was able to get uh, a scholarship. And that led to his becoming an actor. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very unusual beginning. A Jewish boy who wasn't entirely Jewish. And for those of you who think that's a bigoted comment, let me tell you that Michael was born in 1936. It is, he was born before World War II, he was born before the Holocaust. And in those days, Israel was not yet a country. But if you were Jewish, you were Jewish by your mother's bloodline. And here's why. Doctors and people in the community will always know who your mother was because you came out of her. But there was in those days no total proof of who your father was. And since people are Jewish by bloodline, he wasn't considered fully Jewish. Today, nobody cares. And today, Israel doesn't care whether it's your mother or your father. If you're Jewish, you're Jewish. And if that's what you choose to be, they're fine with it. In those days, not so. In those days, having a Jewish father, a Catholic mother, you were made fun of. Michael got a lot, I mean a lot, of harassing because they'd moved from uh, New York City to southern New Jersey. Uh, he was eight or nine or ten. And he got a lot of bigotry for being Jewish, uh, eating alone at school, not being considered part of the crowd. There weren't very many Jewish people where he lived. The Catholics didn't want him because he was part Jewish. And where he lived was mostly Protestant. So Jewish or Catholic, he didn't fit in. Again, another reason to be an overachiever. So he's unhappy at home. He's unhappy at school. What do you do with all of that? Well, what he did was put it into his body. Michael was extraordinarily good-looking. You can't fix that with makeup. He was good-looking from a, the moment he went through puberty forward. That handsome, handsome face, the thick, curly hair. He spent enormous amounts of time both doing gymnastics and in a gym to build his body. And... There has to be a very nice way to say this. And I am not suggesting anything. 
I'm only telling you that uh, in one's build, Michael was blessed. In an area where he had no control over, he was born blessed. And uh, that played a part in his success early on in his career because he photographed well. And when he was photographed full body, there was no doubt that Michael was blessed. And that was a plus. And he used it to his advantage. So Michael gets this wonderful scholarship and goes to the West Coast, but hurts himself. He gets, he gets um, I believe it was a rotator cuff, but he could no longer javelin throw. And in losing the athleticism, he loses the scholarship, and now he needs to work. And he drifts into show business because his parents came from it. And very, very soon he changes his name because no one is hiring in those days. A guy's guy's name with Eugene Arowitz just was not going to go up on a marquee. Maybe today it would. Maybe Gene Arowitz could be a star today. But in those days, uh, you could not be that blatantly Jewish and be an actor. All of the Jewish actors had to change their names. Perhaps, perhaps, if you were a Borscht Belt comedian, you might get away with it, but not if you're going to be an actor. So he picked Michael Landon out of a book, and there he was as Michael Landon. And uh, he, he got through, when I say got through, he broke through rather quickly because he was only 21 when he was already starring in his first film. He'd done some smaller things, and they found out that he did indeed photograph beautifully. And I, again, for those of my friends out there and your friends out there who don't understand what that means, let's say in your high school or in your college or walking around your neighborhood, people think if you're a male or a female, that you're either very handsome or very beautiful or you're big busted or you have big broad shoulders. But you know what? You may not photograph well. And likewise, you could walk around the planet and be, gee whiz, that's a nice-looking person or an average-looking person. But for some reason, the camera loves you. I'll give you an example. Judy Garland. Judy Garland If you don't know who Judy Garland is, why are you listening to this show? Because if I have to explain who Judy is to you, Stephen will be very angry that you don't know who she is. So know who she is and know that walking around the planet, she was an attractive woman. You couldn't take a bad picture of her. Cameras, film cameras loved her. And film cameras loved Michael Landon. You, again, you couldn't take a bad picture of him. There were all sorts of publicity pictures that were taken of Michael just as he was getting started, usually shirtless, usually wearing gym shorts to show off his body, uh, having him do gymnastics. And this is the kind of publicity they put out there. And the young ladies of the late 1950s went crazy for him. Now, they didn't know that he was 5'9". They thought he was 6'2" because in pictures you can be any size you want to be. And uh, that led him to playing I Was a Teenage Werewolf. And then he did a Western, The Legend of Tom Dooley. That's what launched him into Bonanza. So we have him 
getting a little bit of show business experience playing tiny little parts and then bigger parts and then these two films. And they were doing a pilot. There was a man named David Dortort who was going to produce a Western. And it, it went through several names, but it finally came to be Bonanza. And they'd hired everybody else except the character of Little Joe. There were other people up for the part, but the other people didn't photograph as well as he did, didn't have that... There was a twinkle in his eye. I mean, Bonanza never allowed any of the young men to really get into mischief. But there was something in that twinkle that suggested maybe little Joe might get into a little mischief. He was fun to watch. They had to put him in lifts to make him taller because his co-stars towered over him. And again, how do I put this? When he was riding a horse, when he was doing fight scenes and stunts, and because he was so athletic, he was able to do many of his own stunts as long as his face wasn't going to get injured. He he wore uh, the proper padding and the proper protection to make sure he didn't get hurt. In the scenes where he's just standing around, and if you think I'm obsessing about this, Ladies and gentlemen, put on almost any episode of the first five or six seasons of Bonanza and just watch. When he's just standing around, when he's just walking, Michael wore no underwear. And it's obvious, it is subtle, but it made him a sex symbol. And Bonanza was the very first color Western, which made things pop for him. And I I made a pun just now. I didn't mean to. Bonanza was an enormous, enormous, enormous hit for NBC. They didn't expect it. In 1959, when the show started, almost nobody had color television sets. NBC was trying to break through CBS's hold as the number one network. So their big deal was going to be color. And they put a lot of shows in color even though very few people had the sets on which to watch them. But Bonanza was the first Western, and all of television was having this huge Western craze. 1957, 58, 59, 60, 61, there were not three or four Westerns, there were dozens of Westerns on all three major networks back then, vying for your time to watch. Well, Bonanza became number one. And with Bonanza, NBC really gave CBS a run for their money. And Michael was a very intelligent man, obviously talented. You can't fake the long career he had. If he wasn't a good actor, just looking good in tight pants wouldn't have been enough. If he wasn't a smart man who could make the dialogue sound realistic just having a pretty face and curly hair wouldn't have been enough. I could bore you with the names of actors who were in Westerns at the same time, and by 1965 or 1966, they were doing summer stock because their television careers were over already, because all they were were pretty boys who looked good in tight pants. They didn't have his intelligence. 
They didn't have his desire to learn the business, and they didn't have his acting talent. He was born with talent. I have often asked, and now Michael Landon was a big star. I'm a celebrity. There's a huge Grand Canyon gap between my fame and his. But I've asked the question, how did you break through? How did you, there are so many people who want to be in show business. How did you get through? And I think the answer for me is the same thing for the answer for Michael. You have to have talent. You have to learn how to be a professional in the business of show business. And you have to have burning ambition. Because if you don't have burning ambition and your competitors do, you will end up with their footprints on your face as they step over you to get to the next level. Nobody stepped on Michael Landon. I don't know if he stepped on anybody else, but once the first episode of Bonanza started, which, which guest starred Yvonne DiCarlo, by the way, uh, he never looked back. I don't think Michael had a free minute for the rest of his life. He was constantly, constantly working. In those days, even with hour-long westerns, they did somewhere between 30 and 39 episodes a season, which means you had a very, very short period of time uh, to, to, to lay off. And many actors did little summer stock. Uh, what Michael did was spend time learning about cameras and lighting and uh, script writing. He paid close attention to what the directors of the show were doing. He paid close attention. You know, Lauren Green, who played his father on the show, was a marvelous actor, uh, also Jewish, by the way, from Canada. And he really mentored Michael. He saw Michael's burning desire and knew that he was more than just a one-trick pony. He saw the potential in Michael and really pulled him aside and said, look, this is how it works. This is how you hit your mark. This is how you find your light. This is how you upstage somebody in a scene. He gave him good clues on how to be the best little Joe possible. And uh, he learned. And Michael spent the late 1950s and all of the 1960s doing Bonanza. And then he did, again, I think brilliantly, he played game shows. He showed up on game shows and talk shows to remind people that he was a person and not just a character, to remind people that he was smart, that he had a sense of humor. And you wouldn't forget him. It is called in show business getting face time. You make very little money doing these things. Now, when I say very little money, and I'm making up amounts here because I honestly have no idea really how much Michael got paid per episode on Bonanza, but let's say he made $10,000 a week. If you do a game show, maybe you make $500. But by the time you pay your agent and your manager and your attorney, and the clothes you wore that day, you probably didn't make anything. But it gets you out in front of the public. And he did a lot of that. He made sure that besides being one of the stars of this very popular show, that he became a celebrity in his own right. He was very wise about that. You know, there's, 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 a, there's having talent 
And then there's having talent for having talent. And Michael Landon had talent for having talent. He learned and knew how to market himself so that his popularity wouldn't wane. He was smart. He saw the other pretty boys lose their series. He saw some of them quit. Oh, this is beneath me. I want to be a big-time actor. And saw them ending up, you know, in in some little town somewhere doing a play for $500 a week because they weren't as big a star as they thought they were. Michael stuck with Bonanza. He, He never for a minute thought about leaving it. And Bonanza, good heavens, you know, from 1959 into the early 70s, that's an awfully long time for a dramatic show to go on. And there you were with it. Each year, Little Joe got more and more prominent. Each year, he did more and more of the episodes where he was really the star of the episode. Um, uh, Pernell Roberts, who played one of the sons on the show, the oldest brother, left the show, and, and Michael learned from that. Purnell was very, very handsome, a very extraordinarily handsome man. But he felt Bonanza was beneath him. He wanted to go on and do big things in movies and on Broadway, and he didn't. He went on to do more television at less money and never again had the stardom he had as one of the stars of Bonanza. Again, Michael observed and learned and he didn't allow that to happen to him. So once Purnell left, again, now he's one of two sons on the show. There's really only three stars now, giving Michael more time. And Michael began to direct some of the episodes. Uh, he wanted to learn. He wanted to grow. He wanted to have a long-time, fruitful career in show business. Now, while all of this is going on, he obviously also has a private life. Uh, He had married in 1956, right before he became famous, a girl named Dodie, with whom he had two children. They got divorced right around the time Pernell Roberts left the show. I don't think that's the reason they got divorced. I'm just talking timing. Uh, Then he married a girl named Lynn in 1963, and they were together for almost 20 years with four children. So all the time I'm talking about, Michael is marrying and divorcing two very nice women. I don't think he regretted either marriage because he loved his kids. So he's he's got, in the years I'm talking about, six children he's raising, which is another motivating factor for staying with Bonanza. He wanted to make sure that he had money enough that all six kids could have college educations, never have to worry about getting a start in life. That financially, he'd be able to not give them a life, but give them a good jumping off board so that they could have their own lives, which I think is what a good father should do. And from everything I've ever heard, uh, to the best of his ability, he was a good daddy. He wasn't around as much as some fathers, Uh, I don't know if our friends who are listening understand when you're shooting an hour-long dramatic show, uh, and most of it was shot in the studio. I know it looks like they're always outdoors. An awful lot of it was shot indoors in a studio with everything being rebuilt. But you're gone 
5 o'clock in the morning because you got to get to the studio, get into makeup, get into your costumes, which are bonanza or heavy-duty costumes. Uh, he had to put on the boots with the lift so he could look taller. And you shot. You shot scenes. And you shot them till about 6 o'clock at night. By the time you take off your makeup and get home, it's 8 o'clock. And you do that five or six days a week, maybe 35 weeks a year. There isn't a lot of time to be a dad. So the best thing he could do was provide well for his kids, and when he wasn't working, be a presence. Uh, because he did believe in family values, or at least his family values. His home life as a kid had been terrible, and yeah, he got divorced twice, but he didn't, he didn't want his kids to suffer for that. So to the best of his ability, he was a good dad and didn't visit his marital troubles on his children, if that makes sense. So we have him working really, really, really hard in the studio and then working really, really, really hard at home to make sure that, to the best of his ability, his children felt secure. And how can you not respect that? Now, I I hope I've said some very nice things about Michael. Did everybody who ever came across him love him? No. He was, in his ambition, sometimes a little caustic. When he began to learn the business, he had very little patience for people who didn't try their best. And I can put a hundred very talented names in that same sentence. Lucille Ball, Ethel Merman, Jack Benny... Nice people. If you gave 100% to what you were doing, they adored you, they supported you, they would even mentor you. But if you showed up and didn't know your lines or had an attitude or were saving yourself for some other project, uh, you'd have a hard time with these folks. And I think you have the same hard time with Michael. I've already described for you how hard the man worked. If you didn't work that hard, you heard from Michael. So there were some toes he stepped on. He was very outspoken. He believed what he believed. Uh, Politically, he was conservative. Uh, And that meant that sometimes he got into arguments with people because there are as many different political beliefs in show business as there are everywhere else. And if you disagree with his conservatism, you, you, you got an earful. He wasn't shy. Uh, he was a big believer, again, of family values, but he did not want to discuss his own personal religious beliefs. He, he kept his personal family life about as private as one can, considering he was publicly divorced and had children and was constantly, constantly in the public eye. Um, There used to be a joke that Steve Allen, and if if you don't know who Steve Allen is, you should not be listening to Steve's show because Steve and this show is about how 
Hollywood and show business history. But they once said Steve Allen didn't have an unpublished thought. Uh, I don't know that Michael had an unfilmed sentence. He was constantly working. Till he got sick and died, literally, the man was never out of work. I don't know of hardly anyone in show business who worked so consistently in show business. Again, maybe Lucille Ball, uh, maybe Bob Newhart, uh, the cast of The Simpsons today, because they've been on for like 30 years, have worked consistently. It is why uh, many, many, many years later when Michael passed away, he was on the cover of TV Guide five weeks in a row. That's how big of a television icon he became. Because so far, all we're discussing is Bonanza. But there were two hit television shows that followed this. And I know there is a wonderful guest coming on after me who's going to discuss what it was like to be on as an actor on Little House and on Highway to Heaven. Uh, I don't know that Bonanza would have even ended, quite frankly, if not for Dan Blocker dying. Dan Blocker played Hoss, the big bear of a brother. And when he passed away, really that left Lauren Green and Michael. And the premise of the show, to be true to its original premise, was a land baron and his three sons from three different wives. Wonderful premise, by the way. One of the ways you keep a show on a long time is the show itself has to lend itself to lots and lots and lots of storylines, or you run out of ideas. Well, when you have backstories where the father has been married three times, three wives that died, heaven knows what he did to them if they passed away. They don't ever discuss that. But three wives who died, each giving him a son, which explains why the sons don't look alike at all. But the three sons are the best friends to one another and closely, closely knit. But when the sons are gone, the show is kind of over. So once Dan was gone, uh, the, the writing was on the wall, the show was slipping in ratings, but but the, the negative turned into a positive. Michael, because he'd stood there and watched, because he learned, because he learned how to be a show business professional, was able to take over the reins the last season or so. He directed a lot of the episodes. He didn't write them, but he came up with stories, ideas, story ideas, I should say, because the original writers were long gone. The people who had come in, what do we do now? We've got a father and a son and a, a Chinese cook and a couple of other men who come in and out of their lives. Where do we go? Well, he had an idea where to go. And that gave him just enough gravitas. One of my favorite words, gravitas is Latin. It means it gave him the weight. It gave him the credentials to turn around and on his next series, completely be in charge. And there was only a, I don't know, a year lag in between the last episode of Bonanza and the, the beginnings of, because it takes a while for a television series to get on the air. It doesn't happen in a few weeks. You have to have an idea. You 
have to have a pilot, you have to have producers and directors and writers, the network has to okay it, and finally, and then they take it and they show it to audiences with computers, and they decide that you folks who are listening to us today will like this show, or they hope you'll like the show, it goes on the air. At least that's how it used to work, when there were only three networks. So there was a lag time between Bonanza's ending and Little House finally getting on the air. But Little House on the Prairie, uh, based on a wonderful book by by uh, one of the people who were actually there, uh, became a series. It became a series because uh, Michael's wife and Michael's daughter read the books and loved loved the story. And here he was now, producer, writer, director. There's a word in show business for that, author, A-U-T-E-U-R meaning he's everything to the show. He starred in it, wrote it, produced it, directed it, and was a mentor to all of the young people on the show. Because the show had a huge, huge cast. It was another Western that allowed Michael to keep wearing very tight pants because he was still in great shape. He's, he's you know, 14 or 15 years older now, but he's still got the baby face. Now he's got long, curly hair, and he's still in incredible shape. He is still an athlete, and he's working really hard because the hours I described to you before are just for an actor. Now, if you're also the producer and the director and the writer, can you imagine the hours this man had to work? Because the director is on the set before anybody else, but he's got to be in costume, in makeup, and dealing with the camera people and the sound people, everybody involved is involved with the director. And he's doing all of this before the first actor even shows up. And the director is there long after the cast goes home. And then he's involved with the editing of the show and the music scoring. There's no part of Little House on the Prairie that did not have Michael Landon's fingerprints on it. That means the man was working about 37 hours a day, 14 days a week. That's an awful lot of work. He could do it. There aren't very many people who could do that. When I said earlier how talented Michael is, this is part of the talent. He had tremendous work ethic, and he was able, as it turns out, to write and direct, and produce, and cast the show, and be an actor in it, and help everybody else to do their absolute best. But, therefore, he had no time to baby people. He had no time for actors who didn't do their jobs well, or crew members who were sloughing off, uh, and he was getting divorced again. So you had a somewhat tumultuous personal life and this workaholic attitude in his life. Uh, I, I hope for his sake, whatever he was trying to prove to himself, that he proved it and owned it. Because on paper, he should have been like the happiest guy alive. But I know from mutual friends and people who interacted with him, uh, that sometimes he had a temper, that sometimes he was not very happy, and that he had 
like all of us do, personal problems. But if you watch the shows, you never, ever, ever for one second get an idea that this man is not just the happiest person who ever lived. Um, I don't know how much you guys really want to hear about his personal life. Uh, there, there used to be magazines out there that talked about things like, like Michael was left-handed. I don't know if that's interesting to anybody. I don't know. Do you really care who he was married to or that he was unhappily married twice? Uh, he did have six children. Is that important to you? I don't know. I, 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 there are people who really admire a performer's work, and that's what they want to hear about, the work. And there are other people who want to know what brand of toilet paper these people used. Um, I, I'm not going to go into that kind of thing. I don't think the Lennon family really wants that kind of thing discussed. I will tell you this. He didn't abuse anybody. His unhappiness with his wives was done with class. The divorces were done with class. He used, if he had to use anything, smoking as an outlet. The man smoked way too much, and perhaps that's why he got cancer later in life. He and I have many friends in common. Probably my closest friend to him is Alison Arngrim. She adored him. Uh, she doesn't do shows like this because the Landon family uh, have asked her not to. So she she avoids talking about Michael in any way other than an absolute official capacity where his family is doing something on his behalf. But uh, I've talked with her about him many times, and she has said lovely things about him that he was lovely to her, that he was a mentor, that he kept a tight ship, and that she learned so much, because Allison is a hyphenate. She is a actress, stand-up comedian, singer, author herself. Uh, she has her own radio show I've been a guest on, and she's wonderful on it. So she learned from him how to multitask in show business, how to wear different hats, how to keep reinventing yourself, because Little House on the Prairie is different from Bonanza. He's not the bad boy anymore on this. Now, he's Lauren Green. He's the father who now has to make sure that this entire town of people survives and thrives. So the writing is different. The attitude is different. He's not just going from one Western to another playing the same character. It is a completely different point of view for him, which made it successful all over again for him. I asked Jeffrey Mark about guest stars that had appeared on Bonanza. Here is what Jeffrey had to say about that. You know, Bonanza didn't have the budget to constantly have big-name guest stars on it, but they often had, like Yvonne DiCarlo, they would have people who had been big movie stars who perhaps were no longer associated with the studio as the studio system changed in the 1960s. 
Uh, they had people like my friend Don Wells come on and play a couple of parts early in their careers. Don was on it before Gilligan's Island. Charles Bronson was on it before he'd become the big movie star he became. So they either, they, it was coming or going, is what I'm trying to say. They either had people who had been huge and now were not as huge as they used to be, but were still wonderful actors and names known to the people at home, or they had a wonderful eye for young talent. And I think Marlo Thomas did an episode. I know Dawn did, I think, two episodes of Bonanza. Uh, they, they, they would find wonderful young people, wonderful older character actors. Uh, they brought Mitch Vogel onto the show for a while, playing an ongoing part. They brought um, David Canary on, playing an ongoing part for a while. So they, they, they had a good eye towards casting so that you know, it, it has to be on the paper. If you don't have a good script, you can have the best actors in the world, but the scripts are weak. The actors aren't going to go anywhere. Bonanza was known for its really, really well-written scripts. All right? The other side of the coin is, if you have a really well-written script, but you've got lousy actors, uh, the script is going to lie there. Uh, its potential is never going to be reached. So Bonanza, the people who ran it, David Dotor, the, the, the producer, made sure that the scripts were well-written, well-written, I should say, and that the actors they hired could deliver. So if you watch the many, many, many seasons of Bonanza, you're going to see all kinds of wonderful people playing parts. And... Uh, it's, it's fun. It's almost a game. Ooh, look, there's Marianne from Gilligan's Island before Gilligan's Island. And you get to, to see young people getting a chance to shine, and you get to see uh, other people working past the time you thought they did. So uh, they were brilliant about that. It's another reason why Bonanza ran as long as it did. It didn't run all those seasons just because it was in color, or just because Michael Landon's crotch looked nice. Uh, that may have been a reason to tune in the first time, but if they didn't have good acting, good scripts, tight direction, good budgets, it couldn't have lasted, because I'm not exaggerating. Over 100 Western series came and went during the time of Bonanza, and the only competitor they had, the only Western that outdid Bonanza, was Gunsmoke, and that was it. After Gunsmoke, which lasted 20 full seasons on television, the next show up is Bonanza, and Gunsmoke wasn't in color for almost its first 10 years, and uh, wasn't an hour-long show for its first eight years. So Bonanza was in color and an hour long. It, it was a groundbreaking series. And, and this is why. The casting, the writing, the directing... Every part, every actor was excellent. The bartender was excellent. There was no sloughing. High quality was demanded by all. And Michael saw that and did exactly the same thing on Little House on the Prairie. High quality was demanded by everybody who was there. You had to do your best. If you didn't, you'd end up being very unhappy. I asked Jeffrey Mark, about the truth behind 
the long hair myth. Here is what Jeffrey had to say. You know, it's a funny thing about the long hair myth. Originally, on Bonanza, if you watch the early episodes, his hair is shortish, meaning it's probably the length that young men wore their hair when they wore their hair in a DA, back when that was a popular thing. So long on the sides, pushed to the back, short and curly on top. As the years went by, his hair got longer on Bonanza, mostly because uh, our hair got longer in the 1960s. Everybody's hair got longer in the 1960s. It was the thing to do. It couldn't have happened on a Western like that, except for in the 1800s, in the years Bonanza is supposed to be taking place, the years after the Civil War, men had long hair. It was not uh, out of place. It was not an anachronism to have 60s long hair 100 years earlier. They had long hair back then, too. In fact, having short, barbered hair was not how men wore their hair back there. That was the anachronism on most Westerns, that men kept their hair as if they'd been to a barber shop every day, getting it cut and styled. Uh, so Michael let his hair grow out, and Little House on the Prairie takes place more or less during the same time period as Bonanza. And Michael was free to not only let his hair grow out, but because he was playing an older character, and it happens over time, he very slowly stopped dyeing his hair. So that gray kept crept into his hair as well, which is fitting of a man who was middle-aged and healthy back in that time period. If we're talking about historical accuracy, keep in mind, Michael Landon, his own age and the age of the father he was playing on Little House, that was the age many men died back then. If you were living in the wilderness, when you were eating only what you grew and what you could kill, when you were nowhere near a hospital or a doctor, a cold could put you out. There was, there was very little longevity back in those days, unless you were very, very wealthy. Ben Cartwright, it makes sense that Pa could live into his 50s and 60s and be a vital person. He had the money with which to survive. The characters in Little House, not really. So that, that Michael's character's hair starts to turn gray, that makes total sense. In fact, what doesn't make sense is that he was in such great shape at that age. Uh, they didn't have gymnasiums for people to go to and stay in great shape. Uh, Michael was always in great shape until he got ill. I asked Jeffrey Mark to share the story of the friendship between Michael Landon and Johnny Carson. One of the things Michael enjoyed doing, besides the acting and producing and directing, was being on The Tonight Show. And the reason he enjoyed being on The Tonight Show, that that one talk show especially, is because he and Johnny Carson were very close friends. And it's not surprising. They were both men who enjoyed their work tremendously, but away from work were very, very private uh, Michael was not necessarily uh, the life of the party, nor was Johnny. There were people who, if they went to a party, would uh, blend in with the wallpaper 
unless they knew somebody there that they could sit with and have a drink and talk with and smoke cigarettes and have a laugh. But neither one of them got up and entertained. Neither one of them wanted the spotlight away from actually being in the spotlight. And I guess they saw that in one another. I think they both shared having several wives. Uh, I think they both very much wanted to be good fathers to their children and perhaps regretted that work took them away so often that they weren't there as often as they wanted to be for their kids. They bonded, and they were good, good friends. And uh, Michael would do the show because they knew Michael's appearance would bring better ratings that night for The Tonight Show, which helped John. And uh, John knew that having, having Michael on gave him that FaceTime thing we've talked about. So it was a mutually beneficial professional thing, and, of, and it was easy. Uh, Johnny Carson tightly controlled The Tonight Show. There were no surprises. He always knew where the conversation was going. All of his guests were pre-screened by production associates, asked about stories. The celebrities told the stories. So Johnny knew what the stories were going to be. He knew how to lead them into it. It seemed seamless. It actually took a lot of work, and Johnny was brilliant at it. He wasn't just a stand-up comedian. He knew how to make that show work, or at least his version of that show. But when Michael came on, they didn't do that. Because they were such good buddies, Michael could come on and they just had a conversation. Well, Michael also came on to help Johnny out when Johnny had guest hosts. There weren't very many hosts of The Tonight Show through the years who allowed what John allowed. Steve Allen never had a guest host. Jack Parr almost never had a guest host, except when he was having problems with NBC. And the gentlemen who have hosted The Tonight Show since then did not allow guest hosts. But Johnny often had comedians, singers, actors guest host the show so he could take vacations or have a night off or do whatever it is he wanted to do. One night, Joan Rivers was guest hosting. Now, I have to preface this, in case you don't know, that Johnny Carson discovered Joan Rivers. As far as he was concerned, Joan was his, just the same way he discovered Bette Midler. He found them, his people found them for him, he brought them on, and he said to them, you're going to be a star. And Joan and Bette never, ever, ever forgot it, and never, ever didn't credit Johnny with helping them to become what they became. So Joan, at this point in her life, was Johnny's full-time guest host. She was so good on the show that whenever he wasn't there, she was there. Well, I don't know what might have happened backstage. I don't know what Michael's problem was that evening. But Michael came on the show with an incredible chip on his shoulder. Joan, unlike Johnny, would sometimes ask very personal questions because she was hoping for a funny answer. She wasn't trying to trap people. She was trying to give them a jumping off point to say something funny. So she'd ask about their personal lives 
Or she'd ask, so you've been divorced twice now, huh? Or, gee whiz, you wear your pants tight. Those are two questions she could have asked Michael, and maybe she did that evening. I, I have a copy of their interview. I just haven't watched it recently. But she asked something like that, and Michael turned on her. I have never seen a guest on The Tonight Show turn on the host the way Michael did. And in, at first, Joan thought Michael was kidding. And she was kidding him back a little bit, like, ha, 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 that was funny. And he was like, no, I mean this. He, he just, short of calling her a bitch on the air. And Joan said to him, gee, it seems like you don't enjoy doing these talk shows very much. And he said, well, I enjoy them when I have a good host to talk with. And you hear the audience going, <gasps> and I guess Jonah had enough of his not being very nice to her. And she said, yeah, it's the same thing for a host when you have a rotten guest on who's uncooperative. And they went right to commercial. And when they came back, Michael wasn't there anymore. I don't know if that was really the beginning of Johnny souring on Joan. Why, when she went to Fox with her own show, he completely disowned her and never spoke to her again. Uh, in all the books that have been written and all of the interviews given through the years about the relationship between Johnny and Michael and Johnny and Joan, no one's ever made that connection. But as someone who's got a pretty good eye, if you don't mind my lifting myself up here for half a second, uh, I, I, I thought to myself watching this, that's it. Joan just buried herself with Johnny. And not long after, she stopped being the host. And not long after, she was on Fox. So I wonder if, if that wasn't a pivotal moment in her career because of Michael. Uh, he really didn't like her. And he really didn't like the questions. And rather than be charming about it, for reasons I don't know, if I knew, folks, I'd be happy to share it with you. I don't know why he was surly that night. But he was surly and rude. And unfortunately, Joan, I think, tried to save it and then just had enough, and she was rude back. So when you have two people not being professional, it does not make for good television. This was an uncomfortable moment in television. When you make the audience squirm, it is not good television. And this was not good television. Uh, Michael was ending up his time on Highway to Heaven and was on to the next show and got ill. And I know you, you've already had wonderful stories about actors working on the two series he did at the end of his life. It's amazing to me that he was able to get to a third series and have it be a success. The only other person who's ever really done that is Lucille Ball, have three series back to back to back like that, and all of them be big successes. Uh, but after the last one, Michael was shooting a pilot and found out that he was ill. And I, I think it's the mark of the man. For someone who was so tremendously private about his private life, and he'd married for a third time, and had two more children, so now he's got six kids. He's 
having to deal with raising six children at incredibly variable ages, from almost adult to babies. He's got financial woes because he's got three wives he's got to take care of financially. And now he's facing a serious illness. I think Michael knew almost from the beginning he wasn't going to make it. When they found his cancer, it had already metastasized. Generally speaking, when that happens, you need to get your paperwork in order because maybe you've got six months, maybe you've got six years, but you don't have a long time. So Michael did something that was, I think, enormously courageous, and this reflects back on Johnny and The Tonight Show. He went on The Tonight Show uh, looking thin, but looking good. He still looked like Michael Landon. And perhaps that's why he chose this time to go on the show, because he knew further treatments. He wasn't going to look like Michael Landon anymore. And he told the audience he had cancer. He made jokes about taking coffee enemas to possibly get rid of it. He was doing everything medically possible, metaphysically possible, new age medicine possible. He was open to everything. And he wanted his fans to know that he was doing everything in his power to get better. And, uh, yeah, keep me in your prayers, but no, I'm fighting. What a wonderful thing to do when you know you've got that kind of fan base. To show up, reassure them, uh, show your face and not hide. And maybe, and I've heard this is one of the reasons why he did it, and for all the other people out there who were facing cancer or who had cancers like his, he was saying, look, this is nothing to hide from. This is nothing not to talk about. This is nothing to be ashamed of. And you should be trying every possible remedy. I may not make it, but maybe you will. And I have enormous, enormous respect for that. Johnny and Michael were very close friends. I've said this a few times now. Johnny Carson's son died uh, in a traffic accident, driving on a canyon, supposedly while he was taking pictures There are other stories that perhaps he was either high or drunk and just didn't make it. Michael called Johnny. He was too ill to visit him, but called Johnny and stayed on the phone with John for two hours, letting him cry, letting him share, letting him lean on Michael. And Michael was dead like four days later. But right to the end, when he had a friend in need, when he was able to give anything of himself to someone, there was Michael. There will be people through the years who are going to write books about Michael or already have. And because he was such a big, iconic star, this is not the last show that's going to salute him. And you may hear stories He wasn't so nice. He was tough to work with. He cheated on his wives. And perhaps some of that is true. People always ask me, what was so-and-so like? And my answer almost always is, it depends on who you were in their life 
and what was going on in their life at that moment. If you meet somebody who is happy, generally speaking, you're going to get a good reaction from them. If you're meeting with somebody who is dealing with illness or divorce or financial problems or their heart hurt for whatever reasons, you're probably not going to get a very good reaction. I will give you from my own personal life, not that you care about my personal life, but about a good, something that happened to me recently that I kind of explains what I'm talking about. Whether it's of any interest to anyone or not, uh, for 47 years, I had a soulmate. And who it was isn't important, but you need to know that about three weeks ago from the moment I'm talking right now, this person passed away. Well, life goes on. I have this new book on Ella Fitzgerald, and I had to do publicity, and I had to be in a place to sing and sell books. I couldn't cancel. So I called the place to make sure that, you know, everything is there and everything is ready, and I'm, I'm, there's nothing else required from me, but I hadn't forgotten anything in my grief. And they hung up on me, and I couldn't imagine why. And they wrote a letter to my publicist saying, this guy's a jerk. We'll do the event, but like, I don't want to hear from him again. And again, I couldn't understand why. Called my publicist. And he said, Jeff, even if you're talking to me, do you not hear the anger in your voice? I said, I'm not angry with you. And I wasn't angry with the place. I'm angry that my soulmate is dead. And they, he said, yeah, but they don't know that. All they're hearing is your anger. So people who came across Michael and didn't like him or felt they were treated badly, maybe it was because he was angry at something in his life. Maybe he felt he'd failed it in some place. Maybe one of his kids was going through something or one of his ex-wives was giving him a hard time. I think when we're treated badly, that's generally the reason why. I'm not saying there aren't total jerks out there. There are total jerks in show business. I've met several of them. And sometimes, Stephen, if you want to have a show about total jerks in show business, have me on. I will spill my guts happily. I don't think Michael Landon was a jerk. I do think he wore his heart on his sleeve. And it depended on who you were and what he was doing at that moment that informed how he treated you. Because I've heard all kinds of things from all kinds of people. I've never heard that Michael was a jerk. Difficult sometimes? Yes. Three wives? Yes. Not always there for his children because he works so hard? Yes. A jerk? No. He wouldn't have had so many friends. He wouldn't have had so many people who loved him. And Unless someone is an incredibly good actor 24 hours a day, you cannot fake warmth. There's probably one person in Hollywood that I won't mention his name, a game show host who was beloved, who people say was the best actor in Hollywood because he was a jackass. But on camera, the warmth flowed out of him, except for that one person Everybody else, if you watch them and you think they're warm, loving people, they probably are. You can't fake it. Michael never faked anything. He was a superb actor. He was a superb writer. He was a superb director. He was a superb producer. And I think it's wonderful.
Stephen, that you've devoted an entire long show to his memory. And I am so flattered and pleased to be a part of it. One of the things that I admire the most about Michael Landon, the actor, is his willingness to display such deep-feeling emotions on screen. I asked Jeffrey Mark to share more about this. Here's what he had to say. One of the reasons why Michael worked as long as he did and outlasted a lot of the people he did was, although he was a very masculine man, he wasn't afraid to show emotion as an actor. And what I mean by that is, if you watch any of the men, James Drury, uh, Mike Connors, Peter Graves, and I've known all these people, and they're lovely human beings and wonderful actors, but you never saw them cry on camera. You never saw them be afraid on camera. You never saw them pause and think, what's the right thing to do here? Now, I said earlier in our talking about Michael that it has to be on the page first. Well, it does, but if you have a producer who doesn't allow it, it won't be on the page. Michael allowed it. Michael allowed, now of course he wrote a lot of this himself, but even going back to Bonanza, he allowed little Joe to cry. He allowed little Joe to pout. He allowed little Joe to not be sure what is the next best thing to do. He showed that one can be a very masculine man and have doubt and have emotion. Now, he had no control over the writing on Bonanza. He did what he could with what he was given. Once he had control in his other series, you saw a character cry, you saw a character doubt, you saw a character have loss, and how he dealt with the loss. That's on the page, but it takes an actor to take that and do something with it. And how do I say this without sounding sexist? You never for a second felt that Michael was effeminate. Um, you never felt for a second the stereotype of gay people, that gay men are all emotional, weak, just like women, which is a stereotype and not true, but that never came through. Oh, look, he's crying. He must have sex with other men. That was never part of anyone's thoughts. He was a good enough actor to reveal the underside, the belly, because he knew that in the script and his acting, the conclusion would be thoughtful, powerful, and masculine. And that takes a man who is confident. I think there is nothing in a man quite as sexy as confidence. You can have chiseled features and bulging crotches and big biceps, if you're not confident, if you're an insecure person, it doesn't matter. And I think likewise, if you're really confident, I don't mean cocky and arrogant, I mean confident. 
there's nothing more attractive than that. And Michael was able to project that. A confident man can have doubts. A confident man can cry. A confident man can be emotional. And I think he, Alan Alda, there, there were a series of men, I don't mean a television series, but a series of persons, actors, in the 1970s, who started to allow male characters to do more than just uh, have a cowlick on their forehead and jump over cars and make all the decisions. Uh, they allowed their characters to have a range of emotions. Uh, even Dick Van Dyke on the Dick Van Dyke show, Rob Petrie was brilliant and funny and handsome and had a great wife, and a, but he had moments of doubt, he had moments of panic, he had moments where he cried. Uh, there were funny moments. It was funny crying, but it happened. And Michael allowed it in his characters. And I think you're seeing generations of characters, generations of male actors, freer to do what they do because of Michael's example. The remarkable impact of Michael Landon's artistry lives on today. In fact, it is as strong as ever. I asked Jeffrey Mark to share his thoughts on Michael Landon's legacy. There is a reason why we're sitting here in this year, in the 21st century, talking about a man who passed away many, many years ago. It doesn't seem like he passed away many, many years ago. And the reason for it, I think, is two or threefold. One is, Michael Landon became famous at a much different time in history. For those of you who are too young to remember this, there were only three television networks. There was no cable TV of any kind. There was no internet of any kind. There were no DVDs. Uh, there were no even VHS players back then in his first two series. You were on, and you watched it at a certain hour every week, and you had three choices every night, CBS, NBC, ABC. Some places in our country didn't even have those three choices. Large cities also had some independent stations that you could watch other things locally. But those were your choices. You chose to invite this set of characters to come into your living room. Many homes only had one television set. People watched these shows as a family. And these characters almost became part of the family. And the closest, again, I can come, I keep drawing lines between Michael Lennon and Lucille Ball. Uh, we still talk about Miss Ball, who died within a few years of Michael, uh, of the same way. We watched these things over and over and over again. Bonanza is still being rerun on cable networks. Highway to Heaven is still being rerun on cable networks. Little House on the Prairie is still being rerun on cable networks. Alison Arngrim has made a cottage industry out of Nellie Olson. I mean, she's doing shows about this show in Paris. So Europeans are still watching these shows. When you come into people's homes as an actor, and in his case, we're talking three different series constantly 
he literally does become like a member of the family. That is why, uh, next to Lucille Ball, he's about the most covers a TV guide of anybody else. Miss Ball is first by many, and then comes Michael. Because we embraced him, we liked Little Joe, we liked the characters he played on his other two series. It, it hardly seems for any of us that there was a time when Michael wasn't there. And even though he's no longer here, we're still watching him morning, noon, and night. That we still love what he did so much that Allison can go to Paris and in French talk about Little House on the Prairie is a wonderful tribute to Michael's talent, longevity, and, and how we received him. That's a very rare thing for an audience to receive an actor so warmly, so much so, that he's beloved. I don't know that there are any people today, you know, now there's nine million television cable possibilities, and many, many more on Netflix and on Amazon Prime and other uh, electronic venues. But none of these shows have 40 million people watching at the same time. Today, if you get two or three million people watching you on CBS or NBC, you have a big hit show. Uh, quite a while ago, I produced for TLC, the Learning Channel, a documentary about I Love Lucy called Inside Television's Greatest I Love Lucy. We got a million and a half people to watch it, and they complained the numbers weren't big enough. If we got those numbers today, they'd sign me to a million-dollar contract to produce more shows just like that. That's how show business has changed. So many choices, so few people watching each choice. When Michael was on television, literally week after week, from 1959 into the early 80s, at least 40 million people every week were watching Michael Landon. And they were watching him with their parents and their grandparents and their siblings and their friends and their kids. And here we are, and a wonderful like, a show like this is doing him tribute because of that. There aren't very many shows you could do this with, and there are very few actors you could do this with who had this kind of infiltration into the American home. So I think that's why the show we're doing right this second may become one of your most popular things you've ever done because of Michael Landon. Jed wrote me a letter and sent you this for your birthday. What is it? No. Mm -hmm, kind of. Bank note. Take a look. Fifteen dollars! <laughs> what are you going to spend it all on, James? I don't know. What cost fifteen dollars that I need? 
Well, maybe you don't need anything right away. If I were you, I'd just put the money in the bank and let it collect some interest. Then if you see something you want, you take out as much money as you need. Yeah. Oh, I'll help you spend it. <laughs> Me too. Well, that's okay. I'm going to do just what Pa says. Tell you what, Edwards and I are going into Sleepy Eye tomorrow. Why don't you come with us? The bank there pays a half percent more interest. Sure. Oh, well, can I go too? Well, sure, why not? serious how serious is it well i must tell you the truth there's more than an even chance he won't make it see the bullets lodge against his spine it's a very delicate operation Clyde, we gotta stop wayne's bleeding awful bad that's his luck he could die you want to stop go ahead the rest of us can divvy up your share you just plain stupid you know that boy how do we know there ain't a posse dogging us? We have to do something. I've had my say. You do what you want. I not need this anymore. That's him. That's the one that shot James. James? My son. The boy in the bank. You mean the kid that came running in on us at the bank? Is that what this is all about? You three come running after us on account of some kid? <laughs> well, I'm touched. I really am. But that don't change much what we gotta do. Wouldn't be nice us doing our dirty little job here in the saloon. So let's just take these three out of town somewhere. Never and I know God is going to save my son. Charles, there's no way that you can be absolutely sure of that. But I am. I am, just as I'm sure Jesus made the blind to see and the crippled to walk. Miracles happened. Yes. I'm sure they do. But what? I've never seen one. In my 30 years as a minister, I can't honestly say that I've ever seen one. But the Bible tells of them. The word miracle. Why would there be such a word if they didn't exist? asking God to bring him back from the dead. If he was in heaven, I could accept that. He'd be at peace. But he's alive. If God wanted him now, he would have taken him. But all the doctors have told you. I don't care what they've told me. My son will live. God will show me the way. Thank you.
James. Welcome to part two on this special episode, Remembering Michael Landon. I hope all of you enjoyed listening to special guest Jeffrey Mark on part one of this tribute to an incredible man, Michael Landon. As previously mentioned, actor Chris Henry joins me today to discuss his memorable role on the dramatic two-part episode event titled He was only 12. The last two episodes of season eight for Little House on the Prairie. It is my honor to welcome him to the show at this time. Chris Hendry, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, sir. Oh, thank you, Stephen. It's such a pleasure to be here talking with you about one of my favorite people in the world, Michael Landon. Well, it's um, wonderful to have you here today and to share your memories and stories of uh, working with Michael. And uh, you were on a very special episode, a two-part episode event on Little House on the Prairie. I did describe some of that earlier, but would you go ahead and lay out the storyline and what your character was doing on these episodes for those listening out there? All right. Well, Michael gave me an opportunity to play a wonderful character who happened to be a bad guy. (laughs) And uh, I had grown up in Texas and my dad was uh, uh, ran a ranch down there and I kind of was with horses and cowboys. And it was my great dream to come to L.A. and play characters from the Old West. So when I was asked to audition for Little House in the Prairie, it was a dream come true for me to work with uh, one of the top Western creators in Hollywood at that time, Michael. And having uh, grown up on Bonanza, he was involved in a, in a continuous creative streak that allowed him to bring such wonderful episodes of Little House on the Prairie to the world. And, of course, uh, I was uh, really excited when I got an opportunity to audition for Michael. And Susan Sukman McRae, who was his casting director, actually she was married to uh, Kent McRae, who was running all the shows for Michael. And they were quite a team. But by the time I got there to audition... Uh, they were already a 20-something-year-old family because Michael uh, 
took a lot of the people from Bonanza and they brought him with him to his new production company doing Little House. And uh, he kept them like a family. He treated them like a family. And and uh, they were all tremendously loyal to him. And they also produced great work. And uh, this is the other thing about Michael. He, he was a renaissance man. I mean, he was able to produce and direct and act and write and do it all simultaneously and do it all in an excellent way. And I was... I had heard about this, but I, I wasn't aware of it till I actually got on the set and we started shooting that this atmosphere was going to be creating one of the, my favorite jobs I ever had in Hollywood. So, and it was mainly because of Michael's expertise. Of course, he grew up on Bonanza. He was a, an observer of every person's job and he, he figured out how to do it. He knew how to direct going right into Little House after Bonanza, and he did it with consummate skill. He was actually uh, the two-parter I was involved with had been done originally for Bonanza. I think uh, it was, the episode was called He Was Only Seven. It was a similar plot line where uh, one of the younger kids gets uh, shot and goes into a coma, his life is in the balance, and so uh, Michael had that precedent to work on, although he wrote the second part while he was writing and acting in and directing the first part. And that was extraordinary, because you know, I don't know when he slept. <laughs> he would come <laughs> and act the scene and then direct me and set one up for the next uh, sh series of shots, and then he would run off to his trailer and write the second part of the episode of, of episode two of a, he was only 12. So, uh, he was, a kind of a magician with, with the knowledge he had of film and television and the way to write a script. And, uh, he, he was just uh, a genius. I think he was a television genius. I mean, flat out. So I was becoming more impressed every day, but, when I w actually went into the audition, I auditioned for Susan Sukman McRae, who was a wonderful casting director, a great lady. Her husband was a wonderful guy, a great guy. He was originally from Bonanza, and so was she, I believe. Uh, and they fell in love and got married and continued on with Little House. But anyway, she called me in. She had me read uh, this plot of this uh, episode was called uh, He Was Only 12, and it was about a gang of guys, a gang of brothers, who uh, go on a rampage, and uh, they're robbing banks. So, I'm, I'm the head of the gang. Uh, my character's name was Coy, and uh, it was a wonderful character to play, because he was uh, fully fleshed out. I mean, you not, not only saw him robbing banks, but you saw him uh, with his son at home and, in a sense, uh, showing love to her son in a rough way. But, you know, it showed uh, a good deal of insight on Michael's part that he wrote those scenes uh, at the, the, the head gang leader at his house with his wife and his son 
and showed that the guy was a real human being, even though he was doing some dastardly thing. And what happens in the episode is that um, during the bank robbery, uh, one of Michael's sons uh, runs into the bank with his brother as we're actually getting the money out. And I accidentally shoot and uh, uh, shoot him down, actually. Uh, and fortunately, he's not dead, but uh, he's in a coma. So um, that that was a, a very dark moment for my character. And then we go on uh, with the gang of guys and we're riding off uh, trying to get out of town before the sheriff comes and and before Michael shows up. And uh, the next part of the, the first part is actually showing us uh, running away from Michael, who was tracking us with, with Victor French. But anyway, it was a chance for uh, this uh, whole Western thing to come together for me because I got to ride horses. I got to gallop around uh, with my gang of brothers. I got to uh, uh, hide out with them in their hideout. and It was just a, a dream come true. I mean, it was a wonderful experience. And I had already... Uh, you know, come from the Dallas Theater Center, where I was uh, a resident actor, a member of the company, uh, and also, you know, playing the classics, playing Shakespeare. I'd already played the character of Macbeth, so I knew something about dark characters, and uh, I was able to kind of infuse my performance with that uh, knowledge uh, on Little House, uh, because this was a fully... Uh, written character by Michael, and uh, he gave him humor. He gave him a, a kind of a, a lightness and a laugh, and it was wonderful to create those elements from uh, what Michael had envisioned. But anyway, back to uh, auditioning for Susan. I auditioned for one of the brothers, which was a smaller part, and she said, uh, great. Uh, I want you to read for Michael Landon. So I thought, oh, my God, wow, yeah. But she gave me sides for the lead bad guy, Coy. And so I looked at those sides for about five minutes. And then she said, it's your turn. Go ahead, Chris, uh, read the part of Coy for Michael. So I went into the office. Susan was there reading with me. And uh, Michael was there. And he started framing shots. Uh, with a rectangular hand gesture that uh, uh, cinematographers and directors use to frame a shot. While I was reading, he was doing that all uh, surrounding me, like, as if he were the camera and he were shooting uh, the actual scene from the episode. And I was uh, totally blown away. I mean, you know, it's like, oh my God, this... This really looks uh, incredibly exciting. It looks like I might land this part. So uh, when we finished, he said how much he enjoyed my audition. Uh, an hour later, as I was driving home, uh, I got a call from Susan Supin saying, you got the part of Koi. We want you to start shooting in three days. So I was just on the moon by then. And then I looked at the script when it arrived the next day. And it was like seven or eight scenes. 
and the guy was a major character. It was a guest starring part. It was everything I could possibly dream about in terms of uh, fulfilling my fantasy as a boy growing up wanting to be in a Western. And uh, so uh, the rest is history. I, I just, uh, the shoot went beautifully. Uh, there are several things that uh, happened during the shoot that were quite funny. Uh, there's a scene in the movie, in the episode when I'm actually uh, at home with my wife and son, and uh, I'm taking a nap after the robbery, <laughs> and my son comes in and, and tries to uh, uh, filch some some bills out of my desk when I'm sleeping, and I wake up and catch his arm and, you know, say, you were trying to steal from your old man, weren't you? And uh, he says, well, that's how you got it. And uh, so it's like father, like son. Uh, and then I go yell out for raw eggs and coffee for breakfast to my wife. And uh, the next scene at the breakfast scene, um, Michael, when, we, when they were setting it up, actually, um, uh, got some raw eggs. He got two cartons of raw eggs. That's 24 raw eggs and set them on the table and he always liked to work uh either from the rehearsal or the first take he knew that was the best take usually all the energy is focused there so he said i want to do this in one take what do you think chris can you do it in one take and i said well i haven't drunk raw eggs for a while <laughs> so <laughs> i think i can do it <laughs> So anyway, uh, I crack those eggs, I put them in the mug, and I gulp them both down at once in one take. And, uh, <laughs> well I done, felt, Chris. Wow. Well done. If I could do that, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really proud of myself. You know, <laughs> That's an I'm accomplishment in and of itself. I, I think it was. <laughs> so... But Michael was full of jokes. I mean, he, he loved to pull uh, jokes on people. He loved to joke around on the set. Uh, it was a very lighthearted set. Everybody was friendly. Victor French was a great guy, a wonderful uh, guy to talk to, uh, who's a wonderful dramatic actor, as well as being a, a great comedic actor and a good compliment to Michael. And both the series, Little House and Highway to Heaven. So, uh, and, uh, you know, he had studied acting with the greats in New York and, uh, he was a very serious actor and, and was a wonderful, uh, sidekick to, uh, to Michael in this show. And also a very good friend. They, they, they used to improvise scenes together, I think, and kept the show lighthearted, uh, as well as what they did for highway to heaven. Both shows, uh, he was, uh, the best friend of, of Michael, uh, the angel when highway to heaven came along. Absolutely. So, wonderful description, Chris. Uh, thank you so much for sharing the storyline and some of the backstory, including the audition process. And you gave a truly outstanding performance, um, portraying oh, this character. Thank you. Well, I, I, I must say, I, I couldn't have done it without the, the help of 
of Michael and the, all the wonderfully uh, creative people he had working with him. They were all consummate professionals, and, uh, you know, it was very easy. If I wanted to make an adjustment, I would tell Michael, and, and he would do it. Actually, um, I heard that he even changed lines if an actor wanted to say it a different way. If he approved of it, he said, okay, let's do it your way. Now, I was going straightly from, straight from the script because I was uh, very uh, uh, conscious of the importance of the writer. And, and uh, I knew he was a great writer, so um, I, I tried to stick to the script. Uh, and it worked out beautifully. Uh, you know, there was one scene, uh, where, where, uh, uh, I tried to suggest a line reading, uh, uh, you know, uh, one of the brothers, his, his brother gets shot and, uh, dies and, uh, he's leaving, uh, uh, very disgruntled. And so, uh, I was originally going to say, I, I don't like the way he went skulking out of here. <laughs> and and Michael said, uh, "Don't say skulking. That's a, that's an old fashioned word." <laughs> so I said, "Okay, I don't like it. I don't like the way he went out of here." So he said, "Yeah, that's that's the way to do it." So <laughs> anyway, uh, working with him was like working in the theater. It was a very collaborative kind of family atmosphere show, and everybody was there to make sure everybody else did a good job and. And had a wonderful time, and the atmosphere was wonderfully lighthearted. So, I I throw I was thriving in that atmosphere. And Michael, uh, as as you um, described earlier, was a man that could, you know, he wrote episodes, produced them, he acted uh, on the episodes, and he also directed. And you have described the atmosphere of the set so well. It sounds like a, just a uh, just a wonderful set to work on as an as an actor or a crew member, but I'd like to expand a little bit as far as Michael Landon, the director. Is there anything about his style that stands out to you when you think back to your time on the on the episodes? Absolutely. You know, he said one time, "Good comes out of bad," and he said his emotionalism is one of his gifts. And uh, he probably wouldn't have had this gift if he had come from a comfortable family where everything's okay. He had a rough childhood. Both his parents were at odds a lot. And his dad, for God's sake, uh, died at 22 of a heart attack suddenly with no warning. So he's a very young man. You know, the world is ahead of him. And his dad suddenly, he's gone. You know, uh, and that's that was a shock to him, I'm sure. And he had such a beautiful exit, too, when, when he was about to pass away from his cancer. His whole message to the world was a very upbeat, you got to live every moment, guys. You got to seize the moment and live. Don't let life pass you by. So he had accepted his death at 53, 54 years old, too young, much too young, 
but he knew that he only had three months to live, and that was his attitude. Got to live every moment. So he was seizing every moment. And also his mom, I think, uh, may have tried suicide uh, a couple of times with him trying to deal with that. And uh, she was a very sensitive woman, I think. But uh, I think he had a, a childhood that he wanted to make sure uh, people felt um good about themselves and he had the emotion behind it and was not afraid to show it and that's that is a great gift i think i agree with him it's uh what he brought to little house and highway to heaven and uh it's all heart the stories are wonderful stories rooted in the american uh pioneer west and families and he believed in families. He believed in love. He believed in showing affection. He believed in crying and laughing and doing everything openly. And that's what made him such a, a great leader and a great uh, uh, guy on the set because he, he knew these people from Bonanza. He grew up with them, at, and they were all creating together. And they wanted to create a show with great feeling and a show that would move people all over the country, all over the world, which it is still doing. That's why it's still so popular now. So, uh, you know, I have nothing but praise for him because he, you know, literally took on the role of, in my particular episode, um, his son, who was played by Jason Bateman, by the way, when he was 12 years old, is a brilliant actor even then. Yes. Um, that I shot, and he, his life is in the balance for the rest of the episode. Um, it was the total dealing with the, the loss of a son or a son going into a, a coma. And it was a very serious issue. It's a very serious issue for people because, uh, you know, uh, they want to uh, do the right thing, but they don't know what can be done. So Michael simply prayed. And, it, he, you know, his belief in the Almighty was very strong. And that's what he wrote the next part, the second part of the Little House episode, when Michael uh, actually went out with his son against everybody else's advice in the forest and uh, builds a memorial uh, to his son and prays. And this is what is unheard of <laughs> on television, you know, uh, except very rare shows that like touched by an angel or like highway to heaven. And of course uh, this happened before, Michael became an angel on highway to heaven. So I think this was uh, the first kind of step toward that, uh, toward that uh, role that he was going to take on as an angel in the contemporary world and do all these marvelous stories about helping people and uh, uh, settling uh, disputes and uh, bringing joy to people. I mean, this is, this is part of his uh, contribution to the world. And I think, uh, you know, he really showed this uh, when he showed 
that his love for his son was knew no bounds. He was going to pray that his son be healed. And of course, at the end of the second hump, maybe I shouldn't do a spoiler here. If people are going to watch this, he was only 12 part two. I won't do a spoiler, but let me just say that his prayer was answered. So, uh, and that was Michael. I mean, uh, when he first presented this idea for a show, uh, I think to NBC, maybe a CBS, I don't know, but it was I NBC. It was NBC again. Yeah. Like little house is NBC, but, um, uh, they thought what a show about an angel that'll never go. <laughs> and they couldn't believe it, but they said, you know, since it's Michael Landon, I think it was Brandon Tartikoff said, because it's you, we'll do it. So he agreed to do the show based on the fact that Michael was such a marvelous creator and knew he could make it work. So that's a testament to a great creative artist uh, that he can suggest a, a show as outlandish as an angel among us. Uh, and all the storylines that entails. And everybody say that's a crazy idea. And yet the people that knew Michael said, well, you can make it work. We know you can. You, you, I, I'm just so moved and touched by all that you shared, Chris. Uh, thank you for all of that. Just a, a beautiful descriptions and, and full of, um, uh, all sorts of um, wonderful information, and you are you are correct, Chris. Some folks may not be aware, like you just mentioned, there was some skepticism with certain individuals about the premise of Highway to Heaven. In fact, yep. um, I remember years and years ago, Chris, and I'm talking about quite a while ago, reading where uh, someone had mentioned. Uh, to Michael that there was just no way a show about an angel helping people is going to be uh, a s successful, that it's going to be a hit. But in the end, it was very successful, very it much beloved. Yeah. And I think Michael knew that it could be. He, he, he Absolutely. had the vision that, of what this show was going to be all about. No question about it. I think... Uh you know, that was part of his vision. That was part of his uh, um, uh, leaving the world. I mean, he knew that he had made an enormous contribution to the art, the art of uh, drama, the art of uh, great, great television, the and art your, of great movies. And your descriptions of, um, you know, those uh, very emotional moments... Um, deeply emotional moments on the two-part episode on Little House on the Prairie. Uh, for the folks out there listening who uh, maybe haven't seen that episode in a long time, uh, Michael's character actually grew a beard. Do you remember that, Chris? He actually became so oh, yeah. distraught that he looked totally different than he had ever looked on the show before. Absolutely. And uh, the scenes between um, he and his son are heart-wrenching. Yes. Uh, 
uh, that's before he, the old man comes in. the uh, The old man uh, feeds the son some some chicken broth and kind of bring him, brings him back to life for a few minutes. And Michael is just devastated, but it it's brought it so much to my mind because uh, uh, recently I've, I've lost my son to a heart attack. And uh, just the pure emotion of that loss or possible loss in Michael's case, it brought it home. I, I was really cracked up uh, completely dissolved in tears when I resaw that scene with he and he and his son, Jason Bateman, a young actor who was obviously going to go far and who has gone far. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's so real. I mean, it's just marvelous the way, uh, Michael was able to draw on his own emotions as an actor and infuse the whole storyline with a very compelling uh, reality that people can identify with. And, and it, it's so absent from television today that it really stands out. I mean, when you watch episodes of Highway to Heaven or Little House on the Prairie, even Bonanza, they are real stories about real families, and they're believable, and they're very moving. So this is, you know, this is essential for entertainment that really hits home, I think. Well, Chris, um, my heart goes out to you so much um, over the uh, uh, passing of your son. Um, I am a father myself. I have one son, and um, that's the only child that I have. But, um, you know, I certainly... um, uh, just sympathize with you so much, and um, I just wanted to let you know that you know my heart breaks for you, um, and I just can't imagine as a parent having to deal with something like that, and and I just wanted to let you know how uh, truly um, you know sorry I am for your oh, loss. Thanks. Thank you so much, Stephen. That means a lot to me, and I, I really appreciate it, and it's still. I don't know. It's still a hole in my heart. It's still, I'm still realizing that it's true. I can't quite realize it's true, but, uh, the loss is, uh, profound. Um, but back to Michael Landon had, I think seven or nine children. Yes. He adopted three children and, uh, his eldest stepdaughter, Cheryl, was in an automobile accident, I think in uh, Arizona. And uh, somebody had crashed into her. She and her three friends were in the car. Everybody was killed but Cheryl. She went into the hospital, and Michael immediately went to the hospital in Tucson where she was. And here's what he said in his own words. Here's what happened. The most important promise I ever made was a promise to God. I made it while holding the hand of my stepdaughter, Cheryl, who was lying near death in a hospital near Tucson. Her body was just 
shattered. She was in a deep coma, and the doctors gave her a chance. No chance at all. But I would. I couldn't give up. So he stayed with her in intensive care, day after day, holding her hand and telling her that he loved her. And the nurses were saying, well, it's useless. She can't hear you. But he didn't listen. He kept on praying. And he said, when Cheryl finally woke up, she told me things that I'd said to her. And I spoke to God. I promised God that he would, if he would let her live, I would do something useful with my life. Something to make the world a little better because I've been there. Cheryl lived. And I've tried to keep that promise ever since. So from that time on, he may have created that whole situation when his son on Little House was shot down and put in a coma. Hmm. The inspiration. It's the inspiration for that. Never giving up that there was a higher power that could intervene and bring her or bring him back to life. So, I, I, you know, I mean, his insight is profound. His love of his stepdaughter is profound. That experience of him going, dropping everything, going to see her in the hospital and staying with her day after day, praying for her. It's all real. And he made it real on Highway to Heaven. I'm sorry, uh, on Little House on the Prairie, the second, yes. second part of he was only 12. But he but may have brought that situation to Highway to Heaven. In fact, yep. that might have been his way of saying, you know, um, to God, here is my appreciation for what you did for me, is, is doing this series that has that, um, that, that uh, spiritual element to it. Yes, exactly. And that may have motivated him to present it to NBC and say, hey, guys, you know, this is what I've been through, and I'm really willing to share it with the world. And that's absolutely incredible. Well, uh, I'm very excited to discuss your appearance on Highway to Heaven. Uh, I remember uh, uh, viewing the episode that you appeared on. So you work with Michael several years later. What was it like to see him again at that time? It was fantastic. It was like the old home week. Uh, Susan uh, Sukman McRae was casting director so she called me back she was like an old friend it was wonderful to go and read for michael again or or actually i'm i misspoke i did not read for that it was wonderful to get a call from her and say i have a part for you another guest starring part on highway to heaven will you be interested (laughs) (laughs) michael remembered you didn't he yes he did and uh, I really appreciate that. And the, uh, I was playing uh, not a bad guy this time, or kind of a bad guy, I guess. A, a little shady, uh, I think. <laughs> yeah, a, a guy that was uh, an architect that was trying to take credit for um, uh, female employees' uh, work. 
and she uh, gives him a comeuppance, and uh, <laughs> it was kind of funny because the the final tagline was her looking at me and saying, "You have, without a doubt." The worst breath I've ever smelled. <laughs> That's right. That's and right. I'm blowing my breath in my hands trying to smell it. Right? <laughs> and that was Michael's. <laughs> just, just, I remember that. You know, it was perfect. It was a perfect comeuppance for this guy. And uh, <laughs> it was Michael's uh, script. I mean, it was terrific. So, you know... I, he was directing it too, and uh, it was just, it went like clockwork, and it was one take, and that was it. And, you know, it was the same as Little House, the same precision artistry going on with all the people involved with him. Uh, they were able to create these incredible things. And it was like, like you know, it's like Michelangelo uh, with his helpers, you know, creating these incredible works of art. And Michael it's amazing. Did it's amazing all that he um, did for a production. Um, and 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 you know, Chris, you've been in the industry long enough to know there there are individuals that multitask and have more than uh, one position on a project. But I have yeah. to say that in many ways, I feel like Michael paved a way for that because he was doing almost everything. I mean. Um, yeah. I mean, he was just so involved. And to me, that says he cared, that his heart was into it, and he wanted it to be the best that it could ultimately be. No doubt about it. And, you know, he was probably an inspiration for George Clooney. Yes. Who, who came along as a lead actor in the ER and then started directing episodes and then went on and started, uh, you know, a film career excellent film career and yeah, I was involved with a project called Failsafe which he directed which was a live black and white show uh, with the same script as the movie that came out in the 60s and it's a wonderful experience working with George because George also learned on the job how to, how to direct, how to uh, shape a script and uh, put it to use, his own personal use, and and uh, parlayed his his uh, hyphenates uh, into something else entirely. So, and I told when I worked with George, I told him, I said, uh, you know, you're a lot like Michael Landon. I more power to you because Michael was one of my heroes and one of my mentors, and I I had such a great experience working with him. And uh, it's the same kind of experience I had working for George. Well, I have a lot of admiration towards George, and those are some of the yeah. reasons that you just yeah. Uh, yeah. He, mentioned. He's also a consummate artist, and uh, he 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 shares the work and pursues excellence. And uh, you know, his work is stellar. I think now. With all that we are discussing about Michael, the artistic individual, right? His hands in many cookie jars. He's passionate. Yeah. He's intelligent and extremely talented. It's, this does make me think, though, that if he came across an individual, and I'm not talking about human mistakes that we all make, but I wonder, Chris, and maybe you know, 
if he came across an individual in his project that was only giving half efforts, wasn't prepared, wasn't giving it everything that that person had, I would probably assume that Michael would not be very appreciative of that. No. No, he he was a high-energy guy, and uh, as I said, he wanted everything done in one take. It was kind of like Eastwood directing, you know? I mean, Eastwood shoots the rehearsal, and a lot of times the rehearsal is the print they use. <laughs> That's great. Uh, but it's true for Michael, too. He realized that everybody's energy is focused on that first take. Yes. And... Uh, Everybody better get it right so you can move on and uh, go back to your family. And, you know, of course, on Little House, there are a lot of kids on that show, and they had to use them, uh, I don't know, four hours a day or something. They had to leave early. But uh, anyway, he he worked right into that and getting excellence from everybody. But I have a feeling uh, if any slackers showed up, they were gone pretty quick. I bet. <laughs> I bet. He, he didn't tolerate, uh, you know, anybody that was sloughing off. He and I'm sure not. he had a, a sixth sense about those type of individuals. He probably knew just from, yeah. um, you know, just because of his passion, if someone was really on, you know, committed and, and was going to give them, you know, everything they had. Now, Chris, um, you know, so the series Highway to Heaven, of course, back in the 1980s, mid to late 80s. Here it is all these decades later. I viewed over the last several months, Chris, the entire series that is currently available for uh, a Netflix subscribers. So it's available on Netflix. All right. I have to tell you, I love the series back in the 80s when I was growing up in the 80s, a teenager. I loved the series then. I'm yeah. doubly impressed, though, all these years later now as an adult because I, I'm noticing even more um, than, I, than I did the first time around. And, you know, there would have been nothing wrong with a series where an angel goes and helps individuals in need emotionally or they have a difficult situation. You know, that would have been good in and of itself. But Michael yeah. took it even further. He did those things, but he had so much to say about environmental issues, about mental health issues, uh, people with disabilities, companies that had unfair policies, greed, corruption. And I oh, have yeah. to tell you, Chris, it really comes across as way ahead of its time. Oh, yeah. No doubt about it. Well, that's, the, that's why I think he might have been a real angel. I mean, he might have been. He certainly, uh, you know, uh, is a is a growing uh, his body of work worldwide now is just out there and people are, are loving because there's very little like this. There's very little material like this, and it's classic, and it's it's excellent, and it's wonderful storytelling. Yes. So people identify with it, and Michael was such a consummate artist, he was able to pull it all off in, in one person doing all this. And, you know, that's a miracle. That somebody could be in television for 30, 40 years and consistently 
pull off a miracle making excellent, excellent drama. Well, just think, Chris, of course, this is hypothetical and, and you know, who knows what would have happened, but I have no doubt that Michael would have gone on to create yet another um, phenomenal series had he lived he longer. Yeah, absolutely. And he was just getting into features. I think he, he went over, uh, I forget where it was, Thailand or one of those uh, Far Eastern countries uh-huh. to shoot a movie. And that was one of his last projects, I believe. Hmm. Well, I have to say that um, your memories have been so touching and have just warmed my heart listening. And all that you had to say uh, here on this special tribute to Michael on on part two of this episode is one of the reasons I wanted to uh, create and do this episode was to honor Michael. And I think that you have with all that you had to share today. And and I thank you so much. Oh, you're quite welcome. Uh, Again, it's my pleasure. Uh, I'll talk about Michael Landon the rest of my life in glowing terms because, you know, he really uh, showed me the way excellence is done. And uh, he was an inspiration to millions and will continue to be, and I celebrate that with him. Well, as we wind down here, Chris, um, and... and before I welcome the lovely and, and extremely talented Judith Chapman uh, to the show for part three, as she re- uh, uh, shares her memories of working on a very memorable episode of Highway to Heaven, and I'm very much looking forward to that, I would like to end things with you today by mentioning something that we both firmly believe about Michael, and that is despite the fact that he had this enormous screen presence and was a you know, strong individual and, and all of those great things, he was not afraid to be an emotional leading actor, was he? One of his strengths. Yes. And that is uh, not necessarily uh, part and parcel of contemporary television. And uh, that's why it's so refreshing when you can watch the episodes from 20, 30 years ago and still be moved by them because he was able to create uh, as an actor and as a storyteller, I must say, I mean, as a director, uh, the connection, the compelling heartfelt connection that people need to feel in true uh, moving drama. And he was all heart in that way. And I think it's especially interesting because originally he's been described growing up as a very shy guy, you know, not, not an outgoing guy. You know, he was made fun of as a kid and, uh, but he overcame that. I know my daughter is kind of shy and she overcame that, you know, and that's, that's a hurdle for, for some people growing up. And he he became one of the greatest uh, creators of a wonderful family television that ever was. So, you know, it's a, <laughs> he proved that by going on Johnny Carson and, and uh, entertaining the country with his antics and uh, 
uh, it was a very charming guy, very outgoing, uh, but he allowed himself to do that, transcending that fear that, uh, you know, that fear of uh, actually other people, you know, being shy. So I, you know, I think that's a testament to his self-strength as well as his, the way he left the world was uh, exemplary. I mean, he, he, he was just so wonderful saying, live every moment, guys. That's, that's what we all need to do. Yes. Uh, and it's a wonderful message. It, it sure is. Every day is a gift. And instead of waiting till next week to tell someone how much you appreciate and care for them, why not pick up the phone or better yet, go see them in person and tell them immediately. Um, and, and just to uh, squeeze every ounce out of life that you can while you're actually doing that, living life. Absolutely. Well, this has Amen. been a complete honor, Chris, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, thank you, Stephen. It's been wonderful. Well, thank you, sir. And uh, let's all get ready now for part three featuring the lovely and talented Judith Chapman. Thank you. Phoebe Hall Square. I gotta get a picture of this and only take a second. Oh, Phoebe Hall. You know, of all the movie stars in this whole place, she's the one I'd like to meet. I mean, she's a living legend. Well, you're in luck. She's our assignment. the Hollywood Film Society likes to honor a distinguished actor or actress with a really fine tribute. And this year is going to be a pip because we are honoring... Phoebe Hall. Right. How did you guess? We haven't even announced it to the press yet. Well, it's just a guess. Oh, good. Well, she's one in a million. And we want her tribute to be as special as she is. Oh, Mark and I will do anything we can to help. Oh, good, good. Now, let me outline your jobs for you. Mark, we want to show some really great clips from Miss Hall's movies. And I'd like you to gather the clips for us from the University Film Library. That's what I call a job. When I luck out or did I luck out? I like your enthusiasm. And Jonathan, we want you to contact the guests and invite them to the tribute. You're going to meet all the movie stars. Well, that's the way it goes. 
Well, this is a good time to go over the invitation list. Sure. Fire away. Okay, at the top, we've got your daughter and granddaughter. Oh. Wait, is something wrong? Well, uh, Mr. Smith. Jonathan. Jonathan. I don't think my daughter will be coming. Oh. <laughs> we keep bumping into each yes. other. Have you seen Mark anyway? Uh, not since we met you in the hall. He's probably off running an errand somewhere. He's a busy guy. I'm sure you're both very busy with the tribute. That's a lot to do. A lot of people are coming. Mm-hmm. And they'll all be gushing over Phoebe Hall. Your mother has a lot of friends. I'm not impressed. She wasn't my friend. Oh, come on. I find that very hard to believe. Really? You know, I can't count the number of times as a kid I just begged her to spend some time with me, go places with me. Are you telling me your mother never took you any place? Never? The times were so few, they're hardly worth remembering. There was one time, when I was six or seven, and I begged her to take me to the movies to see her latest picture. What do you know? She got mad at me. I did something to offend her. And she dragged me out of there so fast. So much for spending time with my mother. Oh, well, you were awfully young at the time. Is it possible you might not remember it exactly the way I remember I have a very good memory, Jonathan. Oh, I'm sure you do, but when people are angry at their parents, they don't mind as a way of distorting the fact. Not so in my case. He's an angel. I figured that now might be a good time to tell you. You see, I'm an area supervisor from upstairs. Upstairs? What? You mean you go over Jonathan? That's right. I've been sent down to observe and evaluate Jonathan's performance. Oh. Well, let me tell you, he's the best. I mean, you take it from one who knows. <laughs> Still at it, huh? Where'd you come from? Your daughter let me in. Just on my way to the tribute. And you're still trying to get me to go? I thought I'd give it one more try. You know, you are so concerned about my being there. You know who should really be there? My father. But he won't be. You know why? Because she killed him. Gail, you know that's not true. Yes, it is. He loved my mother. And he loved me. But Phoebe forgot all about that. And when she threw him out, she broke his heart. It destroyed him. He started drinking. And two years later, that's what killed him in a car accident. So everything that happened is all your mother's fault. I was there the night she threw him out. I know what she said to him. It was awful. Now, I won't change my mind. I am not going to my mother's tribute. <laughs> when you need something, I mean, the man is amazing. One time we were on this... Mark, you seem a little concerned about Jonathan's evaluation. Concerned? Me? Nah. I want you to know I'm very happy with Jonathan's work. And so is the boss. Well, that makes three of us. Yes, indeed. If this uh, goes well, he'll get his promotion. He's going to be moved upstairs. Upstairs? Hmm. What, you mean he won't be down here anymore? That's right. No more probation. Oh, heaven knows he's earned it. Uh, Gotta fly.
Welcome to the final chapter on this special episode, Remembering Michael Landon. I hope you have enjoyed part one featuring Jeffrey Mark and part two featuring Chris Hendry. Part three is with the amazing and wonderful Judith Chapman, a lady I truly admire. As previously mentioned moments ago, Judith joins me to discuss her memorable role as Gail Hall on Highway to Heaven and her memories working with Michael. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, Judith Chapman. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Steve. What a lovely introduction. You're making me blush. You are most welcome. (laughs) So well-deserved, too. Thank you, dear. Thank you. So, Michael Landon, I am so impressed when uh, you called and asked if I would say a few words about him, because working with him was truly one, has been truly one of the highlights of my career. And because because of who he was, growing up with Bonanza, growing up with Little House on the Prairie, not growing up, being an adult, but then finally able to work with him on um, Highway to Heaven. And because he is such an extraordinary man, and as we've spoken about, that he was a producer, a writer, the, the star, he did everything. And one of the things I find fascinating, Steve, is that so because of the Bonanza episode uh, you did, so many of the crew that were with him on Highway to Heaven started with him and stayed with him from Bonanza Days. And that speaks volumes about who you are as a producer, director, etc. That sure does. That says so much right there in and of itself. And as I mentioned during the description and uh, introduction, um, this episode is from Season 3, Episode 18, titled A Mother and a Daughter. I have to tell you, Judith, this episode could have actually been titled Misunderstandings, because that's kind of the whole theme of the episode, more or less. Absolutely. Well, it is a bit of a mommy dearest uh, 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 story, but with a happy ending. But yes, massive misunderstandings or how a child, a young woman, i.e. me, in this case, Gail, so misunderstands her very, very famous mother and uh, taking her father's side and not understanding when her parents separated, which can be so traumatic for any young person to have their parents separated, have, have their parents separate. But then uh, that's a great, that's a great subtitle, misunderstanding. <laughs> but, but thank gosh, thank God, we're our wonderful angel and his sidekick, Mark, um, Mr. French, who uh, they get her straightened out. And it is a beautiful, beautiful episode. But if I may share with you how I got the part. Yes, please I do. I was living in Thousand Oaks at the time, which is several miles, kind of quite a way north of, a ways north of, of Los Angeles, not super far. But I was told to be at MGM, the former MGM, um, at, I believe, I want to say 7 o'clock in the morning. And to be at the casting office at 7 o'clock in the morning. Well, first of all, to have to deal with early morning traffic driving into L.A., which would take much longer. I say, why do I have to audition so early in the morning? I get to the audition. It's my turn to go in. And who is standing there alongside the casting director? But I give you Mr. Michael Landon. He was there at the casting session himself. 
And I did my lines, and I turned to go, and I thanked him, and I thanked both of them. And I turned to go, and I just had this feeling. You get a sixth sense when you know something's right, when you know it's yours. But I could feel him saying, pointing to me and saying, not saying, I didn't hear anything, she's the one. And I barely gotten out of the office to go back to my car when I was told, you've got the part, you start tomorrow. Well, Mr. Landon had not only shown up for the, the casting session, he was then on his way to the set to direct, to star, to produce in the current episode. I was going to be in the next one. Not very often do you have the star, the lead, the da 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 da, da um, producer, et cetera, director, showing up at the crack of dawn for a casting session. He would usually leave that to the casting director. So that was pretty darn special. And then to go on set and be working with him, to be directed by him, to have his comments, and then be rushing off during lunch to go to another casting session for the next show. So the man was the energizer bunny. He just did not stop. But I never, ever saw a ruffled feather throughout the, the week or eight days that we worked together. On location, out the exterior shots, interior shots, never a ruffled feather. And that speaks volumes, too. And he directed this episode, which he did oh, yes. on so oh, yes. many. He did everything. He, he wrote it. He directed it. He co-wrote it. He, he, actually, there are other uh, writers who got credit for it. But um, it oh, was so, the only time, and I, this is a big confession, but it was a big learning curve for me because I've always considered myself extremely professional um, when it comes to work, showing up on time, getting the work done, et cetera. But I was, again, driving into L.A. very early in the morning, and it was a very gray day, and traffic was slowing down, and this truck in front of me had one of those trailer hitches jutting out about, I don't know, it seemed three, four, very jutting out from the truck. I ran into it. It went into the grill of my car, and my car died. Well, I'm mortified. I have to find a payphone. This was way back in the late 80s before cell phones. Got to a gas station, crumble, crumble, uh, you know, crawled into a gas station with my poor broken car, called MGM, called the set, got a hold of the stage manager, got a hold of the AD, and told him, I said, I will be there as soon as possible. I have to take a taxi because my car is, uh, my car is not running. And I got to the set. I was very near, so I wasn't late. I didn't hold up production, thank God. But Mr. Landon, Michael, came up to me and said something to the effect of, this is not how we conduct ourselves in the professional business. And I just was like, uh, 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 I said, just crawling on my hands and knees wanting to apologize and beg forgiveness. And it was just don't let it happen again. Learn from this. Drive carefully, pay attention to the road, because you don't want to be late for work, especially if you're working for Mr. Landon. So, <laughs> I haven't told any, I don't tell any people that story, but he just was, whoa, fear of God, fear of God. But in, again, a very calm, nice way. Well, thank um, you for sharing that. That yeah, really yeah. displays just how committed he was to any production Absolutely. he was a part of. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, I just love the fact that, you know, I would get to know the camera 
people and the people behind the scenes. It's the way I, li- I like to know who, whom I'm wor- with whom I'm working. And I would talk to them and several, oh yeah, we've been together since Bonanza days. I've been with him and that's it. I used to be, uh, you know, grunt on the set at Bonanza. Now I'm a cinematographer on the highway to heaven. So people grew and evolved as Michael grew and evolved from just being little Joe to being the star, the director, the producer, the writer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Another one of my favorite uh, memories, not so much of Michael, but about Michael, is that years later, flash forward to 2006, seven, I'd been on Young and the Restless for a couple of three years, and CBS asked me if I would work the red carpet and interview all the actors coming down the red carpet. And I immediately said, yes, I thought it would be great fun. I love talking to people. And I said, but I need to have everybody's resume. I need to know who, whom, with whom I'm talking and to be able to talk to these actors intelligently, especially the nominees. And so I did. And not only did I get to speak to them on the red carpet, and a little kudos to me, but they, they were so great. They said, you read my resume. You know what I've done. And I said, of course I did. I did my homework. I think so. You deserve it. But there was this one particular young actress who had been nominated for the third time as a young actress, and her name was Jennifer Landon. And she won that year. So I got to interview her after I was put into a room after the red carpet, put into a room to, to uh, interview um, the winners. And uh, I shared Jennifer, with Jennifer my stories about her father. Well, she was very young when her father died. She was only seven or eight, I think. And she was so appreciative. It's going to bring tears to my eyes. She was so appreciative to hear my stories, even when he got a little frustrated with me because my car, I'd been in an accident and showed up a few minutes late for work. But that um, even at the after party, she, we talked, and I told her more memories of the, the shoot and, and what a pleasure it was to work with her father. And it meant so much to her to have um, an adult, a peer, if you will, an actress peer, I, you know, I'm older than she is, uh, have memories of her father that they shared, personal memories. So That's just that was very it, it was beyond wonderful. I mean, and to have her win, and, and she was like, <gasps> because she sought me out at the big after party at, at the Emmys, and so please tell me more, tell me more. What else do you know? What else do you remember? And it was very, very touching, very touching. Well, I'm very touched just by listening to that story. I could just imagine how that <laughs> made her feel and something she'll always remember and cherish. I would love to ask you, Judith what Michael was like as a director, because in your career, Judith, such an incredible career yourself, you've experienced Mm -hmm. many directors. So here's Michael, Mm -hmm. an actor who is also a director. What was it like being directed by Michael Landon? And does he have a certain style that, that you might have noticed? Again, I just have to go back. He never had a ruffled feather. He just took it Slide. He was very calm, and when uh, close-ups or emotional scenes that I had to do, he would just come in, whisper something or other, or whisper, just, you know, just quietly speak to me. He wasn't bombastic at all. He was very calm, and uh, I was able to do it in one take, two takes if necessary. But I just remember him being so calm, and it, it, and that, and again, it goes back 
to working with the same troop of, of technicians that he worked with, and obviously Mr. French, of course, that he worked with on um, Little House on the Prairie, that there was such a comfort level with them all that he didn't have he didn't have to worry. Everybody was doing their job. Everybody was producing. So he could depend on them as much as they could rely on him to know exactly what he wanted from the scene. Because, again, he was Michael Landon, and he had done his homework. And so it was no drama, no trauma, no hysterics, just very calm and getting it done. It's, it was extraordinary. And I remember when, oh, I do, oh, I just remembered <laughs> that, well, you see the episode, the final episode where she comes on stage and speaks to yes. her mother, and her mother's not sure what she's going to do. That was the very first thing was shot at 8 o'clock in the morning on the very first day. <laughs> the like, very first uh, scene? very first scene was that wow. climactic scene at the end <laughs> of the show. And, and, and I was like, really, Michael, we've got to... Just jump right in. He said, welcome oh to the movie. Oh, my goodness. That is <laughs> so, such a heavy, emotional scene. To start exactly. with that, it would have to be very challenging for you, Judith. It, it was because, it's, well, <laughs> well, I don't know what I'm doing from day one. I mean, I knew the script. I'd rather study the script. But I just remember that. And then to meet the wonderful Gloria DeHaven and, and have, be able to spend some time with her and share stories with her. Because she is one of those stars of the golden era that made the transition to television, to primetime, to daytime. And uh, so it was great fun being a history buff and a film history buff, especially and the golden era. I keep playing these actresses from the golden era, Vivian Lee, now most recently Tallulah Baghdad, that voice. <laughs> but so uh, having a wonderful stroll down memory lane in the episode, because it is about historic um, Hollywood, yes, and then to work with him. But yes, I remember Monday morning, eight o'clock, first scene, and we did it. We did it with his gentle guidance and direction, and it was um, a very special show. I'm sure you've all heard or read that I've been writing a book about my mother. Well, I want you all to know that I've called it off. Because I've realized that there is no way I can put into words how much my mother means to me and how proud I am of her. Would you please forgive me? I love you so much. And I love you. And that scene was 
as I just mentioned, very touching and moving, and mm-hmm. it, it's 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 the moment of reconciliation and and understanding that mm-hmm. that everybody had misunderstandings about things that had happened years ago. Your character now realizes she was a hard work working mom in the film industry, and that took took a lot of commitment. and And then the situation with the character's father that that you know was actually mm-hmm. him that gave up on everybody, mm-hmm. and not the not the mother just getting rid of him and and all of that so touching such a wonderful moment of and performances by you and gloria but again uh, again i just thought of this steve is is it well how progressive or how forward thinking because it was about this time that maybe that awful awful book came out and i will say i started reading mommy dearest and i read about 20 pages and i said i don't need this i don't need to know this i don't i don't care to indulge in this Hmm. But it is so easy to understand how a child can be be um, be misled, be uh, misunderstand, as you said. But that uh, Michael Landon had the wherewithal to utilize that storyline and make it a happy ending. A signature of his style, Judith, because when you first watched this episode, the first thing that that comes to mind is that that your character, Judith, is right. That that her viewpoint, there has to be something wrong with this mother, right? Because you know, even though she might seem like a a a kind or friendly lady, you know, your character is really coming across as very resentful, like deeply resentful. And yet, you can tell that your character is also a good person. So I took it when I first watched it. Well, there just has to be some truth to this. But the brilliance of the of the episode is that. Well, wait a minute. It was actually uh, not how your character thought it was, and and that's a signature style of a Michael Landon production: twists and turns and the unexpected. And and I loved what he did when he when I'm going doing the research on the book that I, the Mommy Dearest book I'm planning on writing the daughter is planning on writing, and then going in to look at old film reels and it was great fun because we shot it at MGM, and uh, got, getting to go into those old screening rooms. Yes. And then how they turn on the old films of Mommy's films, and uh, how it transformed into what really happened. And so she, through her childish misunderstanding eyes, she was able to see the not healthy relationship of her parents. That was a pivotal moment, too, because you're seeing, uh, you know, at first Mm -hmm. I was like, uh, is this uh, part of a film? And they're like, no, this is like a memory. You're watching a memory on the screen, and it really showed uh, what really happened, or at least a a situation. And then Mm -hmm. when your character turns to talk to Jonathan, to Michael, he's not there. (laughs) I loved that moment. Yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. Oh, my gosh, what a wonderful story. Well, down memory. you know, <laughs> Judith... Um I have to tell you that one of my favorite things about Michael Lannon, the actor, is that I know that when I watch an episode of any of his works, but let's just say in this case, Highway to Heaven, I'm going to have some sort of emotional experience that I'm going to see Michael reach in and 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 bring depth to an emotion to a role and i love that about michael i he's a strong you know focused uh man but he's also got this tender and emotional side to his performances and, and that must be been, been a wonderful experience for you to to actually uh partake in that yourself absolutely he really knew how to chug the old heartstrings 
and all of his shows, even his little Joe. And I was I was actually a Hoss fan. I really in Bonanza, I really liked Hoss a lot. I thought he was just very special. Um, but yes, he just that he was a master at getting to the heart of a scene and the heart of a character, and it's and it's and it's beautiful to play without it being overly melodramatic and. Um, sappy it was just genuine it was truly genuine and that's what he how he directed he wanted it to be real and his co-star victor french Mm -hmm. who portrayed mark gordon oh wow talk about talk about just the perfect chemistry the perfect you know casting i mean those two worked so well together and there's also so much humor i just love victor's reactions to so many uh situations involving uh jonathan and 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 victor himself (laughs) let me just say judith you know this victor himself could equally match the depth that michael could bring to a role and and it could really catch you off guard victor could be very very emotional himself but what was it like watching those two work together two peas in a pod again just complete understanding complete acceptance of each other there was no any ever any sense of any uh, uh hollywood rivalry if you will they just were so compatible and worked so beautifully together and understood and respected each other so much to give each other the space to da da da. And Michael, I never heard Michael say, Victor, you got to do it this way. It was Victor, take it away. Such an absolute trust. And so it's a beautiful thing and a, and a wonderful inspiration for, I mean, I'd been working for a long time already. This was post jungle hospital day. So I'd already been doing a lot and being in New York and, and LA working. And so it was just such a pleasure. And, and sometimes I'll come across an episode of highway to have not highway to have or I was thinking really more, um, was the other, a little house on the prairie and they were just soft. They were just soft stories with a poignant, poignant uh, message. Yes. You know? and, yeah, uh, matters of the heart. or um, well some, said, And well sometimes uh, maybe morality or, or at least a sense of right or wrong. And um, exactly. sometimes doing the right thing is not going to be easy. That, that used to be a theme that I, I noticed. This is a perfect time for me to get your personal thoughts on the legacy of Highway to Heaven because uh, Judith, I rewatched the entire series Granted, it took me several months, okay? It wasn't all done in one week or anything, but it took me several months. The entire series is now available on Netflix. I would like to mention that to all those listening. But I have Mm -hmm. to tell you, Judith, I watched it when it was on the air on NBC back in the 80s, and I loved it then. But all these decades later, right, Judith? I'm a little bit older, and I have to tell Mm -hmm. you, so many of the episodes are really way ahead of its time. I'm talking about social stories. I'm talking about social issues. I'm talking about environmental issues. I'm talking about mental health issues. And these aren't just fluff. These are really well thought out written episodes by Michael. And I'm so impressed with that. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on what he was trying to do with Highway to Heaven and the legacy. I think he was dealing, as you said, you said it perfectly. He was dealing with timeless, uh, relevant themes 
of morality, environmental issues, relationship issues, everything, but in a soft, not beat you over the head way. I don't know how else to say it. You said it beautifully, Stephen. As I said, I truly is one of it. Walking down this memory lane, I remember I worked with several actor directors and um, and, and, in prime time over the years. And Michael Landon really takes the cake. But also, also, he always had time, as busy as he was, casting, directing, writing, producing, starring, he always had time for a few minutes to, to talk. But because I asked him where he was from, he said, oh, I'm from back east originally, da, 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 and, and telling me a little bit of his story growing up, working at the Campbell's Soup Company. And, um, I mean, all this stuff. So um, he made it a family he made it a family, and I think that is something that is missing a lot in film today. Everybody's in, or television or soap operas. Everybody's in such a rush to make the money, to to get it done, to be ahead of schedule, to da 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 da, that you don't have time to just say hello and and um, make a connection that makes it easier than to work. So well said, Judith. Oh, thank you. I was just, just I, you're really giving me goosebumps, and 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 and, uh, and I think things we miss a lot. Uh, we're missing a lot. There are a lot of yes. fabulous shows on television. There's a lot on HBO. There are a lot. Everybody's in the movie making or series making game, but there's something about something so comfortable, comforting about watching old Michael Landon shows series that just make you feel at home, make you feel <sighs> content. I wholeheartedly I agree. I think that's something we are missing in our world today, and I think that's one reason why people still cling to their soap operas, because there's something homey about it. And, um, and God bless him. God bless him. He left us too early, but what a body of work he left us to savor, to enjoy for future generations. Well, Judith, uh, I can't thank you enough for sharing all of your memories of working on this episode. One of my mm-hmm. goals was to have someone that had appeared on uh, Highway to Heaven. Of course, Chris Hendry had a uh, an appearance at the beginning of an episode, but he had a lot mm-hmm. to say about working with Michael in Little House, where he had a much bigger role. And I could mm-hmm. not have asked for any better person out there than to have <laughs> you be the person to um, to be on the show for this part of it. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Stephen. You take care, and I look forward to hearing all the whole uh, the whole trilogy, the whole trilogy, the trilogy. Well, thank you so much, Judith, and it's always a true pleasure and honor speaking with you. All right, my dear. Signing off. Jonathan, my boy, how can I say this? You're not going to be moved upstairs. Doesn't have to go. Doesn't have to go. (laughs) 
I tell you, <laughs> I've been going back and forth on this one, and I keep coming to the same conclusion. You're too valuable down here. Too good at what you do. Well, what, what about the boss? Now, now, it's my decision. I've been given the authority to make it, so don't try to talk me out of it. Okay? Yeah, okay. Thank you, Mr. Clifford. On the contrary, Jonathan. It's I who want to thank you. You see, I'm Phoebe Hall's father. Home, Stanley. Hey, whoever owns this piece of junk, do you want to get it out of here? I got news for you, pal. That's the most beautiful car in the world. Well, come on. What are you waiting for? We got an assignment. Right. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Abuse the First Amendment, and you destroy it. Stephen Brittingham, your comments and questions to Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon. <laughs>